So I recently heard a story of a group of Allied soldiers who had been captured by the Japanese forces during World War II. And they were transported to Southern Asia where they would spend their their days building a railway that was eventually going to be used to invade India. And being a prisoner in a Japanese war camp was always a, a brutal experience. But in this specific war camp, the guards were extremely vicious to the prisoners. They would often beat them, starve them, bayonet them, and and kill them if they weren't functioning at uh, their top capacity. It was calculated that this, this railway that they were building was known as the railway of death because it was calculated that about 393 prisoners would die for every mile of the railway that was laid. And one day at the end of the shift, as it was wrapping up, the tools were being collected. And so they gathered together all of the shovels and it was discovered that one of them was missing. And so a Japanese guard began shouting and demanding to know where this tool was and who had taken it. When no one answered, he cocked his gun and started pointing it at the prisoners standing there yelling, all die, all die. And then as he was about to shoot the first prisoner, one man stepped forward out of the line with his head down and said that he was responsible. And so the guard approached him and asked him where the shovel was, but he didn't answer. And so the guard beat him to death with the butt end of his gun, and he lied there as the rest of the men were dismissed. But before the men headed back to their cabins, they decided they would count the tools again. And as they counted, they realized that there was a miscount, that no shovel was missing at all. See, the rest of the men were spared from one innocent man's act of grace and mercy. From one innocent man's act of grace and mercy. And I think all people, no matter who you are or what you believe about certain things, all people can respect that. It's a heart-tugging story of a man giving up his life for his friends. And many of us could maybe see ourselves doing that. But what if it's for someone who has only ever hated you? What if it's for someone who has only ever rejected you? What if it's for someone whom you have given second chance after second chance after second chance, but they still rebel against you and despise you? You What if it's for someone who deserves what they have coming for them, who deserves to die, deserves to be punished? What kind of person would or even could do such a thing? I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53, and we shall see such a person. So Isaiah 53 actually starts uh, in verse 13 from Isaiah 52. Verse 13, I'm not sure why whoever added the chapter numbers decided to lump in 13 and 14 with the chapter before. But we're going to start our reading in 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
and so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a dry and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off for the land from cut cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What a beautiful passage of God's word. You see, Isaiah 53 is a unique chapter in the book of the Bible. And what I would argue is the most important chapter in the book of Isaiah and maybe the Old Testament. And that's because in the book of Isaiah and in all that, follow, all that comes before that, we are presented with a dilemma. And here's the dilemma. The, it, has, it has two parts to it. First, Isaiah makes it very clear in the first half of the book that mankind has rejected God. They've forsaken his commandments. They've turned aside to false idols that they've made with their hands. They have abandoned any sort of obedience to God. And as a result, they deserve to be judged. And that's what the first half of the book of Isaiah is about. It's about the judgments upon the nations and upon Israel. That's the first part of the dilemma. The second part is that as we continue to read, we also see that God is going to extend to all people and all nations who have rebelled against him a covenant of peace. We read things 
like this from Isaiah 54. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. And so the dilemma then is how are both of these possible? How is it possible that a holy God can be reunited to a people who are unholy? How can a God who loves all that is good and only does what is good let evil people go unpunished? How can a judge who is truly just and righteous allow criminals and rebels to walk free? Well, the answer for us is given in Isaiah 53. This is how God's eternal covenant of peace is granted to his sinful people. And the answer is is simply this. Through the servant of the Lord. Through the servant of the Lord. There is going to come a man sent from God who is going to make things right. He's going to somehow allow sinful people to be once again reunited with their sinless God. And so that raises two important questions for us. First, who is the servant? Who is the servant? And second, how in the world is this servant going to be the solution to our sin? And we're going to look at the answer to both of these this morning. And so first, who is the servant? We see from our passage that the servant was a nobody. That is, he was no one special in the eyes of the world. Look at verses 1 and 2 from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It says here that he grew up like a a young plant out of dry ground. And Isaiah here, he's using an analogy. He's He's talking about dry ground, which we know dry ground is not fertile ground. If you're a gardener and you need to plant a seed in the garden and you have really dry and hard dirt, that seed isn't going to grow into a plant. It's not going to be able to sprout and get through that dry ground. It's it's a hard place to, to pierce through. Dry ground isn't conducive to growth. And so what Isaiah is saying, that the servant, he's going to arise out of this metaphorical dry ground. He's going to come from a place and from a time that is not necessarily politically or spiritually thriving. He's not going to be a great philosopher from Athens or a great war commander from Rome or a great priest out of the temple of Jerusalem. He's going to shoot up out of dry ground ground. But there's more. Not only are his origins lowly, we see that he himself is nobody special to look at. The end of verse 2 says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no, look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, you wouldn't be able to look at a crowd of people and say, ah, there he is right there. I see the servant. I can tell that that is the servant simply by how he looks. See, he wasn't appealing 
to the eye. He wasn't robed in majesty or, sp- or filled with spectacular beauty. If it was today's time, you know, he wouldn't have, have millions of followers on Instagram or, or a group of paparazzi following him around every time he leaves his house. He was just an average guy. Nothing special to the eye. The servant was, was a bit of a, he was to come as a bit of a nobody. But it's not as though he goes unnoticed. So even though he's, he's flying a little bit under the radar, he, he doesn't live a life where nobody notices him. He's noticed, and instead of the people accepting him and his teaching, we see that he is opposed and rejected by his people. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. See, the servant of the Lord wouldn't come as a popular liberator. Throughout history, you read stories of liberators. Sometimes you can see old black and white videos of Liberators, and as they're coming through the streets with their armies, you have people standing in the windows, celebrating and waving their flags, cheering for their liberators. But that is not so with the servant. In fact, the very ones that he's seeking to liberate are going to be the ones who despised him. Because of the hardness of their hearts, they will turn away from the gracious hand of the Lord. It reminds me of a friend of mine. He's, he's now a Christian. He's actually a, a pastor who loves the Lord and is serving the Lord deeply. But before he became a Christian, he was heavily addicted to heroin and his life was a complete mess. And I asked him, did anybody ever offer to help you? Like, did, did people always just say, I don't want anything to deal with that guy? Did, did anybody try to actually help you and change you? And he said, yes. People did all the time. They offered to pay for his rehab. They offered to give him a place to live. They offered to help keep him accountable. They extended a hand to help him. But then he told me that when people would help him, like let him stay in their homes or, or loan him something to use, he would rob them so that, he, so that he could have the money to buy more drugs. See, he loves sin so much that he rejected and even hurt those who were helping him. And this is the picture that we see with the servant here. God is extending this hand of grace to people. And in return, what do they do? They reject him. They despise him. They cast him aside as insignificant and they continue on in their own way, even though their own way only leads to a path of pain and suffering and destruction. And that's why the servant here is called a man of sorrows. You know, he would know what it meant to suffer and to weep and to be abandoned by friends and acquainted with grief. And perhaps the saddest part of it all is that the people that were doing this to him, they thought that he actually deserved it. They thought that he actually deserved it when really they were the ones that deserved it. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. See, I know that for me, one of the sins in this world that makes me 
the most angry is that of a false witness. I read an article one time about a man named Brian Banks. Brian was a very talented football player on a full-ride scholarship to uh, University of Southern California, USC, one of the best football schools. And after that, he was likely headed to the NFL. However, in his last summer of, of high school, he was uh, accused of rape and convicted and sentenced to six years in prison. And after serving his time, he was released and registered as a sex offender. But then one day, as he was sitting at home, he received a Facebook message from this girl who wanted to tell him something. And he decided to go and he recorded the conversation where it was actually the girl who had accused him and she had admitted to having fabricated the whole thing. And so Brian served six years in prison for a crime that he never committed and had his future NFL career tossed down the drain in the process. And that's what's happening to the servant here. He is being falsely accused. They're saying of him, no, this man is receiving this because he is smitten and stricken by God. He is being, he, he is being rejected by God and we are acting according to God's will. And yet verse 9 tells us that he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. He was an innocent man who had committed no sin. The punishment that he is receiving is not the punishment that he deserves. And so then we get our answer to that first question we posed. Who is the servant? Well, the servant isn't some majestic king from the palaces of a great empire who will be loved and hailed by the people. Rather, he's quite the opposite. A lowly man coming from a lowly place who would not be welcomed by his people, but rejected, despised, and eventually killed by them. But now we're faced with our second question. We know who this servant is, or at least what he is to come and and be like, but how is this weak and lowly servant like this ever going to solve the problem of sin? This man can't even save his own life. How is he to save the lives of millions, of billions of people? How is a servant like this ever going to bring about a covenant of peace for the nation of Israel? How is a servant like this ever going to fix the problem of a holy God and an unholy people? The answer lies for us in the beautiful words of Isaiah 53, verse 5 to 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the servant was not coming to free Israel from their earthly masters. He was not coming to smite the political enemies of the people, not to be a warrior king who crushes every earthly enemy. The servant came to deal with the chief enemy of all of mankind, the enemy of sin that separates us eternally from God. Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
And the immediate thought we should have is, then that person should have their sin. They should suffer for their sin. Then the very next verse says, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, each and every one of us here is a guilty sinner before the Lord. Instead of going the way of the Lord, we have decided to go our own way. Instead of loving the Lord, we've spitten in his face. Instead of following his commandments, we've knowingly and purposefully violated them. See, every time we fail to live up to God's righteous standard of good, we are sinning against him. That's the biggest problem that is plaguing all of humanity. That we have sinned against our God, our creator. You know, if we were to even just take a fraction of our sins and lay them all out before the Lord, we would be condemned a thousand times over. And unfortunately, there is, there is an eternal cost to sinning against an eternal God. And that is that we will be punished for all of eternity. When laws get broken, there are punishments. That's how justice works. And you might be thinking, well, isn't that a little bit harsh of God? I mean, can't God just let me off of my sin? Can't he just forgive me? Can't he let it slide and let me go? No, he can't. Because to do so would no longer make him good. And if he is no longer good, then he is no longer God. Let me put it for this, this way for you. In, in an earthly court, you have a, a criminal that comes before the judge and he has this long list of crimes that he's, he's broken the law in many ways and he's been doing so for many years. He knows the law. He knows that the law is good and yet he chooses to continually break them. If the judge were to say to that man, I forgive you of your crimes, you may walk free. Would that judge be a good judge? Would that judge be a just judge? He's allowing for the breaking of the law with no consequence. The answer is no. He's not a good or a just judge. He's a corrupt judge and he has no right to be a judge. And the same would be true if God simply forgot about the evil and wicked sins that we've committed and let you and me go without the crimes being paid for. And so the idea that God is good, it, it brings us comfort because we know that he is going to deal with all the sick and wicked evil in this world. But it's also the most terrifying truth in the Bible. That God is good because we are not good and therefore we must pay for our sins. There is a punishment when evil people sin against a good God. And that punishment is the wrath of God, which the Bible says we will suffer for all eternity in the fires of hell. And that is why sin is the greatest problem that we all have. And that's why the servant came to deal with our sin. And how does he deal with it? By taking it all upon himself. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. See, how can God maintain his goodness and yet let sinners like us go? How can God maintain his holiness and yet be united to unholy people like us? How can God maintain his justice and not punish rebel sinners? The answer is only this. The suffering servant 
of the Lord bears our punishment in our place. God takes our sin and his wrath against our sin and he puts it all upon the servant. He doesn't just forget that evil and wickedness has been committed. He doesn't forget that there's a punishment for sin. Rather, he himself comes and bears it all upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And the servant wasn't forced into this. He wasn't sent as a sacrifice against his will or else God would be unjust. But he voluntarily goes to die for his people. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, the servant didn't protest to what was going to happen to him, though he had every single right to. He doesn't fight back against his false accusers, though he had done no wrong. He stands there and he takes it because he knows what he's doing. He has voluntarily chosen to bear the wrath of God for sin. And so he takes the blow of justice in our place. And verse 9 says that the blow of justice kills him. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The servant of the Lord is put to death and buried in the ground for our sins. Now at this point, we begin to wonder. We see the servant. And because the servant has been killed, does that not mean that sin and death have the victory? I mean, the servant of the Lord is lying there dead in the grave. He's succumbed to the enemy of death. If that's not winning for death, I'm not sure what is. But that is not the end of our story. Verse 10 and 11. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. See, after making this final and perfect offering for sin, the servant of the Lord does not remain in the grave. Death has not won. Sin has not won. Satan has not won. The servant of the Lord will be vindicated and raised to life. God Almighty shall prolong his days. Even the small victory of death that the enemy had over the servant will be stripped away from him three days later and the servant of the Lord will emerge as the one who has fully and finally conquered death. And we see that not only does he provide victory over death for himself, but for his offspring as well. It says, he shall make many to be accounted as righteous. And so not only does the servant take away our unrighteousness by taking our sins, but through his victory over death, he imparts to us his very own righteousness. He takes our sinfulness and he gives us his sinlessness. 
He takes our shame and he gives us his honor. He takes our slavery and he gives us his freedom. He takes our death and he gives us his life because he himself was raised to life. The great exchange. And the servant of the Lord will not go unrewarded for his sacrifice. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Because of the servant's perfect and obedience and perfect sacrifice, the Lord is going to hand over to him the portion and the glory that he is due. He shall be highly exalted and reign forever as the one who has defeated death, sin, and the devil. The suffering servant goes from being a man who has no beauty, no majesty, to being the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who all people are now commanded to bow down and worship. This is no longer the suffering servant of the Lord. This is the vindicated servant of the Lord. Now, this story seems too good to be true. I mean, are you saying that one man by his death and resurrection can solve the problem that has been plaguing millions, billions of people for thousands of years since the very first human? Are you saying that even though I've not given God a fraction of the attention or glory that he deserves, that his blood can wash me away of all my failure? Are you saying that even though the only thing I deserve is death, the servant now offers me life? Yes, you've heard correctly. That is exactly what I am saying. The story truly is too good, but yet it is true. And the greatest part about it is that it isn't just some fairy tale that had been conjured up by some prophet in in Israel to act as a sort of propaganda to give the people hope. This story is, is as much a reality as the ground is beneath your feet. You see, fast forward from the time of Isaiah 700 years and we read these words. She will give birth to a son and you shall call him Jesus for he shall save his people from their sin. You see, the suffering servant of the Lord has come, and his name is Jesus. And we see that in every area of Jesus' life, he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Where and when was Jesus born? In Israel, politically ruled by the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. Spiritually, a, a dark and desolate place. No prophet in 400 years. A corrupt religious ruling class. It is dry, dry ground. But out of it comes the Lord Jesus. And how about his life? Was Jesus a king robed in majesty? A man who could be picked out in a crowd? No. He was the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. And when he gathered his followers, who did he gather? The political and religious elite? No, a bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, and outcasts who, who dined with him alongside sinners 
and prostitutes to the point that they called him a drunkard and a sinner. And what about his miracles? Surely they would see his miracles and accept him. But try again. When he healed, they charged him with Sabbath breaking. When he cast out demons, they charged him for being the prince of demons himself. He was despised and rejected by men. Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord. And eventually they rejected him to the point that they could no longer tolerate him being alive. So they conspired against him. But Jesus has done nothing wrong. He perfectly obeyed the law of God and was without sin. But it doesn't matter. They considered him smitten, stricken, and afflicted by God. But surely Jesus would defend himself. Surely he would call down armies of angels to strike them all dead. Surely he would use his divine power and authority to put this madness to a stop. Surely he would fight back against the cries of crucify him, crucify him. No. For just as a sheep is silent before its shears, so Jesus opens not his mouth. Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord. But why remain silent? Well, because Jesus has come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was the purpose for which he sent. Jesus didn't come as a revolutionary who failed. He didn't come simply as a moral teacher who was killed for his teaching. Jesus didn't come just as a prophet in the line of many other prophets. Jesus came that he himself might be given as a ransom for many. The piercing of Jesus' hands and feet with the dull and rusty nails was for our transgressions. The crushing of his body with the whips and the cross was for our iniquities. The punishment of him hanging there, beaten and battered, struggling for every breath as he chokes on his blood has brought us peace. And by his wounds, his lashes, we have been healed. Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord. And he breathes his final breath and cries out the words, It is finished. The price has been paid. The perfect blood of the Son of God has been shed. The offering has been given and it has been accepted by the Lord. By his blood, he has made many to be accounted righteous. Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord. Crucified between two sinners, now laid in the tomb of a rich man as told by the scriptures. And the people begin to wonder. And his disciples begin to wonder, was he really the servant after all? For he lies dead and lifeless in the grave. But have they forgotten? Jesus is not only the suffering servant of the Lord, he is also the vindicated servant of the Lord. And the stone is rolled away. The Lord has prolonged his days. He shall see his offspring and be glad. Out of the grave emerges to life the resurrected Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the vindicated servant of the Lord. And he shall be rewarded. The Lord shall give him the portion and glory due for the one who came and gave himself for many. He shall be given the name that is above every 
name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the suffering, the vindicated, and the eternally glorified servant of the Lord. Now you may be here this morning and not be a Christian. You might say to yourself, yeah, it's a nice story, but it's not for me. I want to warn you that one day every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day, you can do it voluntarily in adoration and thanksgiving for your Savior and all that he has done for you, or you can do it in fear and trembling as you await to be cast into the eternal fires of hell for your sin. But it doesn't have to be that way. This is a story of the love and grace and mercy of our God. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The offer of forgiveness is for everyone. But the sacrifice is only for those who repent of their sins and turn away from their old life of rebellion and place their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this morning, I invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be spared from the wrath of God that is to come. Turn back to your creator and see see the Lamb of God. See his worthiness to be followed and worshipped. And for all of us here who have already done that, what a glorious gospel that we have believed and what a loving Savior that we worshipped. I often ask myself, why God? Why Why did you do this for a sinner like me? What have I done that I would deserve a love like this? And the beautiful truth of the gospel is that we have done absolutely nothing. For while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It was purely a gift of grace by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, the Lamb of God, the true bread from heaven, the resurrection and the life, the vindicated servant, the good shepherd, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who is worthy to receive all power and riches and wisdom and glory and honor and blessing forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, risen Lord Jesus, You came and you have conquered every single enemy that has been placed on this earth. Lord, in the very beginning, man was with you and man enjoyed sweet communion and fellowship with you. And yet, then the enemy came. And then death came. And sin came. And all of the world has been groaning and crying out for our redemption. And Lord, you have brought that in the Lord Jesus Christ who came and bore the sting of death, who bore the pain of the wrath of God, and yet who was not contained by the grave, who was risen and who is now seated on high where all of us come now, Lord, bowing to you as the one and only righteous King, Lamb of God, who has taken away the sins of the world. May we 
praise you and honor you with all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.